Welcome back to Cartels, Conspiracies, and Camarena. I'm Jack Llewellyn. Thanks for joining me. This is um, the Sunday before my favorite holiday of the year, Thanksgiving. So in advance, I wish everyone a great Thanksgiving. Hope everybody enjoys family, food, football. Stay safe. And it looks like there's a couple of big storms, so everybody stay warm. And, and as I said, stay safe. Okay, we're going to talk about what we're going to talk about today. And as you know, if you've listened to me for very long, sometimes I have kind of a methodical plan, at least in my mind, of how a couple of different podcasts stack together and talk about a common theme. Sometimes things just kind of come randomly. Today is one of the latter, and we're going to talk about... a. Mato Carrillo Fuentes, the Lord of the Skies. And you may be saying, why him? Why now? And there's actually two reasons for it. So number one, for totally unrelated reasons, I was re-watching parts of Narcos Mexico, including some of the scenes and, and storylines involving Carrillo Fuentes and I had some thoughts about how he's presented in Narcos Mexico. And there is an element in my mind of glamorization, even glorification, if you will, which got me thinking a little bit more about just kind of who he was and, and things. And then there is a podcast that has gotten some run on social media because, and this was in the newsletter last week, but because El Mayo's brother was on it and talked about Carrillo Fuentes' death and addressed, at least in some respects, the rumors that Carrillo Fuentes wasn't dead and, in fact, had staged his own death to escape the authorities. That commentary from... El Rey had was was widely talked about in certain circles on social media. So you put those two things together, and I thought, you know, that's an interesting topic for today. Uh, and so we're going to go through Carrillo Fuentes' life, um, his career. We'll talk a little bit about the controversy surrounding his death, and uh, and I think it's interesting. He's an interesting character. As I said, he, he gets represented in certain ways in a lot of the media that are interesting. And and even if you look at the pictures, if you just pull them up in Wikipedia or something, you'll get kind of the handsome roguish character. But if you look at other pictures of him as he got closer to death, that's certainly not the picture that, that uh, would represent him at the time. So I find him interesting in that regards, and so let's let's talk about him. So Carrillo Fuentes was born December 17, 1956 in Sinaloa. He was one of 12 kids. Yes, he had 12 kids. He had 11 siblings, if you can imagine that. He um, is the nephew of Ernesto Fonseca Carrillo, Don Neto who we've talked about a lot. 
And that's really how he got his start in the business. He started working for Uncle Ernesto. Eventually, his brothers worked with him. And as I'll talk about later, to his dismay, his son got involved in, in, uh, in the drug trafficking trade. Carrillo initially was working with his uncle, Ernesto Fonseca, uh, and that group out of Guadalajara. He went to Ojinaga, Chihuahua, where he would oversee cocaine shipments from Ernesto Fonseca. Um, and he learned a lot about border operations from Pablo Acosta Villarreal, who we've talked about before, who was one of the out of old school traffickers from whom a lot of people, including Caro Quintero and uh, Miguel Angel Felix Caro, and to some extent, Ernesto Fonseca, um, worked and learned. And these are uh, part of how that group of traffickers kind of all knew each other. Eventually, Amado relocated to Ciudad Juarez. Acosta was killed in April of 1987. We've talked about him in the past, and there was a cross-border raid into the Rio Grande village of Santa Elena, Elena sorry, in Chihuahua by MFJV police, assistance from the FBI. When Acosta was killed, Rafael Aguilar Guajardo took Acosta's place, but he was um, apparently, now there's a little bit of disagreement about this, but the consensus seems to be that he was killed by Amado Carrillo Fuentes, who then took over control of that organization, which essentially was the Juarez um, cartel, especially after that 1989 division of, of plazas and, and assignments of leadership by Miguel Angel Felix Gallardo at that infamous Acapulco meeting with his lawyers. I looked at a couple of interesting um, articles and discussions about Correa Fuentes and, and kind of what made him special. One of the things that everybody seems to be talking about when you look at, at him is this idea that, that he was very smart, very skilled, and also very opportune. So in the, the wake of Acosta being killed and Aguilar Guajardo being killed, there were lots of different organizations that were looking to control and different people trying to control that Juarez smuggling route or the Juarez Plaza. It seems that Carrillo Fuentes was really good, really smart about knowing how to kind of stay in the wings and then jump in and claim territory and turf when there was kind of a vacuum as a result of, you know, two other groups fighting. He also was known as, um, again, a, a good manager. He built a vast network of street informants, informants in every agency of law um, in Mexico, 
both in law enforcement and in the military. He also, and we'll talk about this more, had um, connections to powerful friends. The same MO as a lot of the bigger cartel leaders, right? Pay off everybody you can, have friends with some, you know. Um, Amato was very good, very focused on consolidating power and largely on keeping the peace in Juarez. So he was the right person in that regard for politicians and uh, other officials who were corrupt but didn't want to look corrupt, right? So if you're corrupt and the cartels and the traffickers you're working with are committing violence and think, you know, there is violence on a daily basis, there's crime, etc. That creates problems for that corrupt official. Amato, on the other hand, was really able to kind of keep things calm, keep the peace, which made him the perfect companion for those corrupt officials. One of the things that's interesting is there's a lot of discussion in some of the articles that I've read about how Carrillo was very careful to stay out of the limelight, even as his power and his fame grew. After his death, the Washington Post actually called him one of Mexico's most mysterious men. This is from um, the Washington Post. He lived discreetly, no wild shootouts, no late night disco hopping. Few pictures of him of him appeared in newspapers or on television. He was from a new breed, the DA liked to say, a low-profile kingpin who behaved like a businessman. And other people say that he really came came to view drug trafficking um, as a business. There's a, a story, and I don't know if it's apocryphal or true, but um, he reportedly said to a priest who was trying to encourage him to leave the life of crime, he apparently said to this priest, I can't retire. I have to keep it going. I have to support thousands of families. There is a journalist by the name of Malcolm Beeth who's written a lot on Mexican cartels. He wrote a pretty good book on the hunt for El Chapo called The Last Narco, which again, I think did a pretty good job. He talks a little bit about Amato in uh, in his book, and he says about him, he learned fast, and by the time he inherited the Ciudad Juarez Plaza, he was a master. He proved adept at... One more time, I'm sorry. He proved adept at nurturing contacts and was known nationwide as a diplomatic narco, preferring peace to war and corruption to chaos. One of the things that Carrillo Fuentes is well known for, he's the Lord of the Skies, right? Well, he had lots of planes, and he used them in interesting ways. So, to continue with Malcolm Beast's commentary, there was no doubt Carrillo Fuentes has succeeded in gaining access to the air. 
He owned several airline companies and began using them to fly cocaine straight from Columbia to Chihuahua on to the United States after that. The planes would land at an airstrip in the Chihuahua Desert where Carrillo Fuentes' crew and as many as 70 security personnel awaited the load. Within mere minutes, the drugs would be offloaded and the Colombian plane would return home. Another plane was then used to fly the drugs into Texas. The planes Carrillo Fuentes used were fast, exceeding 500 nautical miles an hour and could outrun the radar planes used by U.S. Customs. They would land in the middle of the desert where the haul, sometimes as much as 12 tons of cocaine, was picked up by the American contact. The flight back to Mexico would carry the proceeds up to $60 million in one trip. Then we go on just a little bit more because I think this is just well said and it's much better for me to read from Mr. Beast's book than it is for me to try and paraphrase it. Carrillo Fuentes was also keen to expand within Mexico. He set up operations in Hermosillo, Sonora, which he planned to use as a key transit point for drug shipments. He moved into a pink stucco mansion near the American consul's residence and had construction resumed on an unfinished home known locally as the Palace of a Thousand and One Nights on account of its onion-like domes. According to DEA agent Wilborn Sears, at one point the head of the Hermosillo station, Carrillo Fuentes managed to get federal protection for flights going in and out of the city. They were doing everything out there except kick-starting the Narcos airplanes. Okay, so that gives you an idea of Carrillo Fuentes and his fleet of, of planes and his, his style. One of the interesting things, and if you've watched Narcos, the original Narcos or Narco Mexico, you're aware of, is that Amado had some type of a relationship with Pablo Escobar, which apparently began in about 1988. And during this time, Escobar's cocaine shipments to the U.S. were getting a lot of scrutiny. The U.S. was onto it. You know, they were trying to stop them. So we needed new waves to move the product. And Carrillo Fuentes actually gave him two ways. He had a new route to transport the drugs by sea, but most importantly, as I just mentioned um, in Malcolm Beast's book, he had that, you know, he, he had that great um, flotilla of planes that made him famous. It is said by some that Carrillo was the pioneer in demanding that the Colombian drug traffickers pay him in cocaine, which they say then in turn gave him access to markets in Chicago, Atlanta, Oklahoma, Seattle, and other cities in the United States. In short, he was, you know, the only one out there that really had the ability to coordinate multi-ton shipments. At one point, it was said that he had control of or access to 
272 passenger jets, which were equipped for cargo transport. Many of those shipments flew directly into Juarez, where they were guarded by the MFJP. Think about that, 272 passenger jets. Let's say that that is overstating it by half. That's still a huge fleet of planes, right? The, um, you know, there are some, and when you were reading about Correa Fuentes, you get some diverging opinions and things. One article talks a lot about the fact that he was the first to establish a formal alliance with the Colombian cartels. Not sure how that relates to some of what Felix Gallardo was doing, say, five or six years, seven years earlier. But that's what they say. So he had this relationship with Escobar that, as they say, started 1988-ish. Kind of came to a head in about 1991. And Jean Yiro Velasquez Vasquez, also known as Popeye, the bodyguard, hitman, friend, companion of Pablo Escobar, says things got bad <laughs> when. In about 1991, remember when Escobar built the prison? He built his own prison. They called it the cathedral. And then he said, okay, you got me. We'll surrender, but only if we go to this prison that I built that, you know, looks like no other prison on earth and that most of us would have been happy to be imprisoned in. Well, apparently, according to Popeye, when they were in the cathedral, Amado Carrillo stole about 12,000 kilos of cocaine from Escobar. And he did that in connection with or in alliance with the Cali cartel, which, of course, was at war with the Medellin cartel and with Pablo Escobar. So at some point shortly thereafter, this all gets found out, and Popeye talks about the fact that pa uh, Pablo really wanted to go after Carrillo, but he was really in a, a, a bad situation, and I think that we forget this piece about Pablo Escobar. So when they got out of the cathedral, and, and especially when they were in the cathedral, and then right afterwards, money for... Escobar wasn't great. There had been a period of time where the outflow was far exceeding the inflow and things were tough. So they still were continuing to fight with Colombia. They were fighting with some paramilitary groups and they were fighting with the Cali cartel. And so Popeye says that Escobar really didn't do much in as far as confronting Amado Carrillo, because for lack of a better way of putting it, he just couldn't afford it. It wasn't worth having a four way fight, you know, fighting on four different fronts. Interestingly enough, the cart or the alliance that 
Amado Carrillo Fuentes established with the Cali cartel didn't last long either. And I could not find a reliable source to say what happened exactly. But what we seem to know is that in 1993, the Cali cartel sent certain folks to a restaurant, the Bali High restaurant in Mexico City, where Carrillo and his family were eating. And they shot up the place, killing uh, three bodyguards and two diners. Carrillo and his family survived, however. During his um, tenure, it is reported in a few different places that he made as much as $25 billion in revenue over the course of his career. That's not too bad. Not too bad at all. One of the most important connections that Carrillo made on his rise to the top was someone by the name of Jesus Gutierrez Rebolo, who was Mexico's top-ranking drug interdiction officer, and he was a division general. What's interesting is Gutierrez, according to all reports, based on his position, had access to local intelligence, to intelligence provided to Mexico by the United States, including the DEA, and the information that he had and the intelligence that he received included anti-drug investigations, wiretaps, interdiction programs, operations, and informant identities. So if you're going to be a drug trafficker, that's the guy you want in your pocket. Things started to unravel for Amado Carrillo in February of 1997. Right about the 6th of February or so, Authorities received a tip that Gutierrez, and everybody makes this mistake, it seems like. (laughs) It's so stupid. But apparently, Gutierrez moved into an expensive apartment whose rent could not possibly have been paid for with the wages received by a public servant. They also then received or obtained a recording of Gutierrez and Carrillo Fuentes in which Gutierrez allegedly discussed payments to be made to to him in exchange for essentially ignoring Carrillo Fuentes' drug activities. Gutierrez was taken into custody and charged with bribery and other, um, other crimes, including uh, facilitating, facilitating the transportation of cocaine. He was eventually sentenced in one uh, set of crimes to 31 years, 10 months, and 15 days. In another court, he was sentenced to 40 years and a uh, fine of more than 24 million pesos. In addition to the arrest of Gutierrez, there was other pressure kind of coming down on Carrillo Fuentes in late 96, early 1997. 
there was a lot of pressure against Governor Jorge Carrillo Olea, who uh, may have had some relationship to Carrillo Fuentes, but there was a lot of public perception that he was, at a minimum, complacent to the drug-related violence and the trafficking going on in his jurisdiction. And so there started to be um, some silent marches and, and other things. Carrillo Alea was eventually forced to resign and arrested. Put all these factors together. And apparently, at some point, Carrillo Fuentes decides, I'm going to undergo plastic surgery and liposuction. Yes, liposuction. And he scheduled this surgery for July 4, 1997 at the Santa Monica Hospital in Mexico City. In the course of that operation, he died of complications. And I'll talk in a a couple seconds about what that might have been. There's some indication in different reports that it might have been a malfunctioning respirator. But I I think that that is of dubious quality. Two of Carrillo Fuentes' bodyguards were in the operating room during the procedure in November 1997. The two surgeons who performed the surgery were found dead, encased in concrete inside steel drums. Their bodies showed signs of having been tortured. And that torture... Uh, I think is important a a little bit later on. Uh, Carrillo had a large and lavish funeral. Eventually, the Mexican government seized a lot of his assets. The mansion that he had built uh, that I mentioned earlier was destroyed and things. So, So Carrillo Fuentes dies on July 4, 1997, and... Within days, there are questions, all kinds of questions. The Mexican Attorney General Office comes out and says, hey, he died on the operating room table undergoing plastic surgery and liposuction. They they made sure that in these initial reports, it was plastic surgery and liposuction. Um, Amato's family soon confirmed that story liposuction and all, telling reporters he had suffered a heart attack under anesthesia. The, um, all kinds of rumors started. Way before social media, this was the social media event uh, of, of that time. And everybody was talking about it. Lots of rumors that he wasn't dead, that he'd faked his own death. The attorney general's office actually invited reporters to see the body. And if you look online, you can see the picture of this corpse um, in a casket. And it's it's really kind of revolting. Um, yeah, all kinds of things. There's... um. A, an LA Times reporter had said that um, 
one of his hairdressers, a barber, had said that the cover-up was evident because of the corpse's decaying limbs. The barber apparently said, those aren't his hands. Those are the hands of a classical pianist, to show you maybe the absurd level that the speculation went to. Narcos Mexico kind of restarted this. There's a, um, a, 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 again, a heavily fictionalized and very, in my opinion, sympathetic version of a model portrayed. In the third season, he takes um, center stage. And when he dies, dies, there is a scene after that where his girlfriend is holding on to a toy airplane that Amato apparently took with him everywhere or almost everywhere, which is a pretty heavy wink, wink, nod, nod. He's not really dead. As I mentioned earlier, recently, recently, there was an interview on a YouTube channel, which apparently was with El Mayo's brother, El Rey Zambano. And in the discussions, they talked about the death of... Amado Carrillo Fuentes, and another author by the name of Jose Alfredo Andre Bojores had alleged that Amado Carrillo tended to take a benzo drug called Domicum, also known as Mirazolum, to calm him down. That was a medication, according to the theory that he didn't disclose to the surgery doctors and he had it in his system before going into surgery and being under the effects of anesthesia. El Ray said in this interview that both played a factor in his death. But El Ray made it pretty clear that he believed he was dead. No question, dead. One of the things that the DEA did, and there's a great story. There's a couple of really good articles about this, but there's a story of you know some DEA agents in Mexico City getting word that Carrillo Fuentes had died while they were having a Fourth of July party in Mexico City. So a couple of them went down to um, to the the morgue, did. Um, uh, there was actually a time where the, the body was getting moved to go to a funeral and they brought it back. And there's a story of basically the the police or the military having to pry his mom's hands open so that they could take the, the, the casket back. One of the things, though, that happened is a Mauricio Fernandez, a former DE agent, was able to match fingerprints of the body in Mexico City dead at the time to somebody who 20 years earlier had um, had their fingerprints taken as part of a border crossing process. And because he was able to match those and because the first person was believed to be Amado Carrillo Fuentes, Fernandez was able to say, that absolutely is him. And he says, this is Mauricio Fernandez, there was a lot of folklore about Amado. 
and who he was. And I think for a lot of people, they wanted to keep that thought alive. It would have made for a wonderful story. But the fact is, that just wasn't the case. It's just not the case. Then there's another nice story um, from somebody else, another DE agent, uh, Larry Villalobos, who had also gone down right after you know news of, of Amato's death. And he said that a few years later, an FBI agent came to him and said he had a trusted source, somebody that he trusted completely, who had said that he spotted Amato in his old stomping grounds of Ohinga, which is just over the border from Texas. And the source said, we know exactly where to find him. And Agent Villalobos apparently said, I hope you didn't pay very much for that information. He ain't dead or he ain't alive. He's dead. So those are people who had direct contact with the body immediately after. One of the things I just, this is an aside, but I've always been mystified by this. This idea that somehow famous people either escape their death or fake their death and then are never, ever heard from again. And the idea that people could be, could fake their death and leave, you know, maybe I could, I could fake my death and leave. Nobody would know. Nobody would care other than, you know, having to reach out to my family. No big deal. Right. I could, I could go, you know, be a lawyer someplace and have a different identity and it wouldn't be a big deal. But you're talking, you know, when you talk like famous people, Hitler, and I'm going to talk about that one, Tupac, Elvis, you know, whoever you want. Is it logical that somebody like that really could go hide and never feel the need to to say who they are ever? You know, you see people in witness protection who can't do it. You know, Sammy the Bull couldn't do it. He had to say who he was. It just it, it blows my mind. Back to the Hitler one. There's there's all kinds of evidence that lots of Nazis fled Germany at the end of World War II and made it their way to Argentina. There's a, a particular city in Argentina that is a mini Germany. You know, if you watch programs that show it, it looks, you would swear you were in the Bavarian Alps. And shortly outside of there, there's a lake and just off the lake, there's a house that, you know, some have said, look, just, just like the, um, the Austrian, retreat that Hitler used to go to. There's all kinds of other indications that there were um, some type of defensive systems around it. Some have claimed in, or have been shown finding um, Nazi money there, Nazi coins at this site. And people are convinced that Hitler fled Germany, got on a U-boat, was able to make it to Argentina, was taken to this house in uh, Argentina out on this lake, and he lived out his days there. But nobody ever saw him. And just this idea, I'm not saying that it's impossible, but the idea that somebody like that, somebody who seemed to crave the attention, could then retreat into you know, obscurity 
just doesn't seem plausible to me. And I wonder the same thing about Amado Carrillo-Fuentes. Even if we put aside, you know, this information from these two DE agents that seems to conclusively say that was him, he's dead. You know, would somebody like that really be able to retreat for forever? I don't know. You you decide. So what happened after Amado's death? Well, his younger brother, Vicente, took the reins, um, but he was weak. <laughs> um, he didn't gain the respect or have the respect of, of the, the capos under him that Amado had. He didn't have the ability to keep the peace and kind of be the politician. And as a result, the alliances that Amado had held together really started to fray. And that contributed to a wave of violence that was, um, you know, that we've talked about over and over. Old rivalries, you know, parties that had wanted to get into that Juarez trafficking route, but couldn't because Amato was there. They started to sneak back in. Top lieutenants were fighting with each other. You know, you've seen that play out over and over. Um, Eventually, Vicente was arrested. Carrillo's um, youngest son also... um, got involved. Oh, by the way, let me just go back. Uh, Remember when we talked about Mexico's judicial system and how everything's not speedy there, just like in the United States. So Vicente, Vicente Carrillo Fuentes, the the younger brother, he was called the Viceroy sometimes. Um, But he was arrested in 2014. (laughs) He was then sentenced in September of 2021. Seven years later, but he was sentenced to 28 years in prison. Um, In 2009, the uh, authorities arrested Carrillo's son, Vicente Carrillo Leva. Apparently, Amado Carrillo really didn't want his son to get involved in drug trafficking. And so he sent him to universities in Mexico and Switzerland and in England and really discouraged him from getting into the business. Unfortunately, Vicente didn't uh, listen. He um, also was one who uh, kind of was notorious on social media and other things of flashing his wealth and the like, and that led in large part to his arrest. Okay, that's my... Recap of Amado Carrillo Fuentes, the Lord of the Skies, and the question of whether or not he is still alive. Again, I find a lot of this very interesting, um, both from a from a, a standpoint of trying to place all the pieces together in how they fit into maybe an organized picture and an organized framework of the Mexican cartels since, let's say, 1985. And uh, I think that that's interesting. I think the interrelationship with the 
Cali and Medellin cartels is interesting. And then I really do find some of the individual personalities interesting. Interesting in the sense that we have talked about recently. We look at Mexico today. We look at CJNG. We look at CDS. What makes them different? You know, uh, what would make them different if one of the main leaders was to die? What if El Mencho dies? What if El Mayo dies? Right. And I think that it's it's interesting, but it's also important in being able to analyze in a clear and concise and factually accurate way, which then leads to better policy better policy leads to better results, etc. All right. Again, happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Stay safe. And that's Ben Cartels, Conspiracies, and Camarena for next for this week. And we will see you next week after Thanksgiving. Thank you so much.